This is Tate Talks on iHub Radio, a fresh perspective on how to live your best life. Combining biological sciences, mind-body medicine, nutrition, and exercise. This is the place to get the big picture on health and wellness. Live from the iHub Radio studios in Palm Springs, California, here's functional medicine certified health coach and award-winning wellness expert, Jason Tate. This is Jason Tate, and you are listening to Tate Talks. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here with me. I am looking forward to bringing to you this hour on Tate Talks, the science of addiction and substance use disorders with primary care physician and addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Karen Antweiler. We're going to discuss the staggering statistics regarding the precipitous rise in addictive behaviors over the most recent decades of our history, as well as the science of addiction, signs and symptoms to recognize if you have addictions, and of course, tips, tools, resources, and support for you to overcome addiction on your continuous journey to a healthier you. I am thrilled and excited to have a guest on the show for this hour. Her name is Dr. Karen Antweiler. She was born and raised in Hollywood, California. She's a native Angelino. She is a second year family medicine resident and medical doctor with Eisenhower Health in Rancho Mirage, California here. And she remembered when she was very young that she wanted to be a physician. Uh, so she actually took an unconventional path, bypassing undergrad and heading straight to India to go to medical school. She chose primary care because she wants to take care of the whole person, particularly investing in her patient's mental health. She saw signs of mental health abroad and in the U.S., uh, mental health and mental illness, and she's taken a special interest in addiction medicine and assisting others in recognizing that a, addiction is a chronic disease, and she wants to help bridge the gap of that mental stigma. So we're going to do that right here on the show. We're going to have so much fun talking about this topic. It's a it's a challenging and dangerous topic to talk about, but it's one of the most important topics. So I'm thrilled and honored to have Dr. Karen Antweiler on the on the line. Karen, are you there? I am. Hi, Mr. Tate. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. And you you can call me Jason. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because um, Karen actually was in my classroom. You know, we have this wonderful relationship with Eisenhower Health and the Family Medicine Residency and the residents when <clears throat> we have the normal, you know, school schedule we're on their rotation for community medicine. So last year, Karen was able to come and speak with my students. And so um, that's possibly why you call me Mr. Tate, but. <laughs> I did, I wanted to imitate those students. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk uh, about statistics first. I actually want to start with the statistics on addiction because I was looking over some papers that you had written uh, and doing your research, and these statistics are frightening. So let's hear about some statistics about addiction here in the United States. Yes. So addiction is pretty devastating. About 23 million Americans, this is age 12 and older, have suffered from a substance use disorder. So basically one out of every eight adults 
have struggled with both alcohol and substance use disorders. And we all know definitely more than eight people. So at least one of them is being affected with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was also alarmed by the amount of people who are actually receiving treatment for this, as well as actually recognizing that there's a problem. So with so many people, with so many millions of people, I know we don't have that many people working in healthcare specifically on this type of um, support. How many people are actually receiving support and help with their addictions? And this is actually very sad, but only 10% out of those 23 million people are receiving treatment. And if we think about the burden, addiction costs our society more than 740 billion dollars annually, healthcare expenses, workplace productivity. So it's definitely something our country needs to get on top of. Wow. That's, that's uh, one in 10, right? I mean, that's such a, such an important number. And we're going to talk later about bridging the gap. We're going to talk later about <clears throat> reaching out and providing more support because there's only so much that we can do and there's only so many people working in healthcare. With respect to the statement of mental health, uh, mental health awareness is actually on the rise. It's happening in our schools. It's happening nationwide. There's this, you know, awareness and this awakening, by the way, towards positive mental health and how important it is for us to recognize it, understand that mental illness occurs and happens to everyone. But what about mental health? Why is mental health at the root of addiction? So I believe our health is a trifecta. So there's the physical health, there's the mental health, and then there's our social health. And mental health is essential for everyday living. We need to make decisions, problem solve, we need to be resilient, adapt to our work environment. And when it comes to simple terms, addiction is when the brain it becomes overly sensitive to the reward stimulus. So basically to the release of dopamine and the brain craves whatever brings about that increased stimulus. Mm -hmm. So when there's mental illness that's compounded with this substance use disorder, it makes everything challenging. And then we just have a downward spiral when physical health gets affected, but maybe hypertension, diabetes, COPD. So that entire trifecta gets affected. Wow. Yeah. And and I had um, also read in one of the papers that you published this term downward drift, which I thought, you know, this phenomenon of downward drift where you're, like you mentioned, you're combining this issue of the mental health with the addiction, and then you've got physical health declining with it, and it just kind of all coalesces, right? And it all comes together. Right. And with this downward drift, these patients who are suffering from substance use disorder plus their propensity towards psychotic illnesses, they're more likely to live in rough neighborhoods where there's crime, disease such as AIDS are more prevalent, and it just makes a downward spiral. Wow. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to be sharing some quotes and some words of wisdom later on in the show today. And in that, you know, one of them is from Buddha about, you know, what you say and what you think and what you feel. And so much of that, right, is our mental health state. What we say is what we are, what we think is what we are, that type of thing. And so the good news is <laughs> what goes down can also go up, right? I mean, 
You've right. seen this very likely, and you you're actually dedicating your life to this, right? So what's yes. the what's the reason behind this? What's your motivation towards in primary care? You can go so many different routes. Why this? Why addiction medicine, and why specialize in this? So I have a personal connection to addiction medicine. I had a family member who suffered from substance use disorder, and unfortunately, I never even got to meet him because he passed away as a result. So coming from an Asian household, there's a huge stigma regarding mental illness, addiction, particularly substance use. So for the longest time, my family never talked about this family member. And later in my 20s, I found out that this family member had been addicted to opioids and was shunned from the family. And after years of being a victim of substance use disorder, he finally tried to escape from that crowd and that life. But unfortunately, in that process, he died under mysterious circumstances from what was called an accident. And to this day, my family still questions whether or not it was an accident. So the sad part to me is that this could have been avoided if he had received treatment for what is a disease than maybe than being shamed, guilted, and shunned. And I think this is the biggest reason that's drawing me to addiction medicine. I can resonate with that so deeply. This is incredible. I. I was also um, coming up on the anniversary of my mother's passing, and she too uh, was quite addicted to cigarettes, and she was addicted to sugar as well, and she was essentially self-medicating with these dopamine-producing products, and you know this whole you know in in the paper that you had published shaming the sick, how to stop the blame and shame game and addiction. This is coming through so powerfully in your story, in your rationale and your reason for pursuing this. I just think it's beautiful and it's important to hang on to that and and allow that to keep motivating you. Losing my mom was one of the hardest things I've had to go through in my life. And it's propelled me to do some of the greatest things that I've ever done in my life. And I can hear this in you as well. And it's so beautiful and so powerful. Why is addiction medicine and substance use disorder important? Why is it important for people to hear? And before you answer that question, let me just remind uh, anyone who is listening, I'm speaking with Dr. Karen Entweiler. She is a second-year family medicine resident. She has, a, has her medical degree. She's here in the Coachella Valley with Eisenhower Family Medicine in Rancho Mirage. And we're talking about addiction medicine, substance use disorder, addictions in general, and the role mental health plays in all of this. And later on, we'll be talking about some of the ways to recognize whether or not you have an addiction and going over some of the strategies on how to overcome those addictions. So why is addiction medicine and substance use disorder important, Dr. Antweller? So addiction medicine, I believe, is one of the biggest challenges that our country is facing, not just our country, but the entire world. And it doesn't discriminate. It's affecting the rich, the poor. It's affecting all ethnicities, all ages. It's creating limitless harm and burden. And the sad fact of that is that people still believe that substance use disorder is a moral weakness and they don't accept that it's a disease. And even more sad is that there are evidence-based medicine and ongoing research that shows that addiction medicine is real, that substance use disorders can be treated. 
So it's very important that people to, that people understand that just like diabetes, that hypertension, that have treatments, that there is treatments for nicotine, alcohol, and opioid dependence, and all they need to do is ask for help. Right. And what would you say is the biggest challenge that people need to overcome before they can actually get to a point to where they're able to ask for help? I think people need to first embrace the idea that they do have a disease. I think the first part to anything is accepting that they're suffering from an illness. Once we cross that stage or once we get to that barrier, then it's about feeling comfortable to talking to your family or to your friends and then seeking the right support. And obviously there are still barriers with addiction and substance use disorder, but I think the most important thing is kind of coming to grips that that person is suffering with the disease. Yeah, agreed. Wow, such a compelling and interesting and important topic that we are sharing right now on the show with addiction, substance use disorder, the science of it. We're gonna get into the science of addiction and we're gonna be sharing again, how do you know? How do you know if you're addicted to something? This is such an important question to ask. How do you know if you have multiple addictions? This is also an important question to ask. Where can you go for support? And where do you start if you do? What's the science behind addiction? Answers to these questions and more right here on Tate Talks. Stay with us. Health and wellness conversation from A to Z. This is Tate Talks on iHub Radio with Jason Tate. This is Jason Tate and you're listening to Tate Talks. I have on the call with me today and I wouldn't say in the studio. I'm in the studio. We're here in Palm Springs, California, and we're talking about addiction medicine, substance use disorder, addictions in general. Uh, and we're going to launch right into the science of addiction in just a moment. And I wanted to <clears throat> uh, introduce John. John, actually, our station manager, he had a question. Of course, this is a, a very you know busy time right now. And with elections, it's November and there's a lot happening. And there's a lot of you know laws that have been passed and orders and measures that have been passed related to certain types of drugs. So John had a question that he wanted to ask you, Dr. Antweiler, about recent laws that have been passed. Yeah, there were, you know, as usual, a lot of referendums, people trying to pass a lot of things like uh, recreational cannabis and things like that around the country. But there was one that was uh, particularly surprising this year in Oregon, and it had to do with legalizing uh, small amounts of uh, possession-wise, small amounts of hardcore drugs like cocaine and heroin, and the advocates for those were not trying, I think, to make it easier to become addicts, but instead to shift from criminalizing to getting people treatment by not incarcerating those who are trapped by addiction. Uh, I'm wondering if you think that those kinds of laws or, or those approaches 
are uh, at all helpful or just more destructive in dealing with addiction problems? That's a great question. So I recently attended the MRF conference, and this is a conference for addiction medicine. And I don't remember which South American country it was, but there was a country that favored rehabilitation over incarceration, particularly for substance use disorder. And in that country, they noticed that the rates of drug abuse dramatically decreased. So with Oregon doing this, where they're hoping rehabilitation over incarceration, I'm hoping that these people who we've been criminalizing for many years, that it hasn't really gotten them any closer to their loved ones or getting the care that they need at the scale it requires. So as a provider, I'm hoping that it reduces the rates, it decreases recidivism because it's showing these people that they're humans and that we care about them. So yes, it's a different approach, but I'm hopeful that this approach works. Yeah, me too. I, and and also just for the sake of our audience so that they understand, it, it's not just going who cares about the drug problem. Uh, law enforcement in Oregon would still be in place in terms of people who are dealing those substances. Exactly. That, yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think right on point and quite relevant to the topic and the compassion that you're sharing, Karen, as a physician, I think, you know, of, of all the physicians that I've met, there's this commonality, this commonality of compassion towards people and towards patients. And I feel like the message that you're sharing that addiction is a disorder, it's a disease, and it's not, <clears throat> it's not necessarily a person's fault. And once you get trapped in kind of this downward spiral or this, you know, downward spin, you drift, you kind of get stuck, if you will. And to criminalize somebody and just incarcerate them would, that doesn't solve the problem, I think. You know, right. I mean, this, it obviously hasn't worked for, well, for and, years. Well, and quite frankly, and I'll just say this the co founder of this radio station passed away last December uh, at the age of 30, almost, just just turned 31. And, oh, wow. um, and he was a longtime uh, victim of having been uh, an addict to opiates. And it was heart-wrenching for all of us to watch what he went through and, and to see how our, even our medical system in some places doesn't have much of a heart and, and tends to throw shade at these people uh, and attitude towards some in some places towards them uh, and not care about them the same way as if they had come into the ER from, uh, you know, a heart attack or uh, because they were having a stroke or something like that. Exactly. It's hard. Right. And it's like the first step is to kind of shift that mindset that just like cancer or diabetes, addiction is a disease too, and it's a brain-altering disease. And with that, you know, you see that behaviors that are sometimes irritating, like the manipulation, the lying, but those are the symptom manifestation of the disease. And I think it's really important for people to understand that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you yeah. for your input. 
Thank you, John, for your question. And I think that brings up uh, a fantastic and really amazing point that, you know, that we're going to actually spend a little more time talking about. So we'll talk, I think, just briefly about the science of this because you touched on it, Karen. Uh, This is a brain changing disorder. So I want Mm -hmm. you to definitely be able to share with, uh, with me how the brain is affected, how the brain is changed when somebody is addicted to a substance. So coming up next on Tate Talks, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel with regard to addiction. And no, it's not a train. (laughs) Stay tuned as Dr. Ann Weiler shares with us some solutions and successes. If it's good for your mind and body, it's part of the discussion on Tate Talks. From iHub Radio, here's Jason Tate. This is Jason Tate, and you are listening to Tate Talks. It's a beautiful day here in Palm Springs at the studios here at iHub Radio. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I really appreciate you being here. We are sharing a powerful topic, one that I firmly believe every family, every household across the country is touched by, which is addiction. Addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Karen Antweiler, who is on the call with me today. Karen, thank you for taking time out of your life and your studies and your uh, background and your, I know you're doing the pediatrics rotation right now in Loma Linda. And I'm just so inspired by the work that you do and that your colleagues do as well. You're a second year family medicine resident with Eisenhower Family Medicine. And I'm just so honored to be part of that family and uh, have so many friends in that group. So thank you for taking time. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this topic that's very dear to me. Yes, and it is very dear to you. And like I said, it's It's something that touches every family. I firmly believe it touches every family across this country. So if you could share with me, not getting too detailed, but kind of the mechanism, right? So what's, you know, how can we kind of convince people that addiction isn't a person's problem, like looking at somebody who's obese and blaming them and shaming them, right, for for their obesity. Mm -hmm. Obesity is kind of in the same boat, you know, where I feel like it is. Uh, how is addiction, like obesity, a disease that the person is almost kind of trapped in their own, in their own mind, in their own body, and they just need someone to care and help? Right. So, so starting off with simple terms, so addiction is when the brain becomes overtly sensitive to a reward stimulus. So that involves the release of the dopamine, and the brain craves whatever brings about that increased stimulus. So, for example, like eating, which could lead to obesity, or using maybe nicotine, like a substance use disorder. So in terms of more of a scientific standpoint, the main factor in addiction development is the neural reinforcement or the reward. So there have been many pathways that have been identified, but one specific reward pathway is there, and that involves the dopamine. And the dopamine kind of originates in this area known as the ventral tegmental area, and then it kind of pushes forward into this other area, which is known as the nucleus accumbens. 
And the nucleus accumbens is basically the intersection of all addictive behaviors. So the dopamine, the dopaminergic neurons that are there, when they're released from the nucleus accumbens, they produce this positive reinforcement or that euphoria. So just for example, nicotine, it releases that dopamine and that creates that euphoric effect. And another way it does that is it reduces the activity of an enzyme that degrades dopamine. So the end result is there's an increase in dopamine. Right. And so looking at possibly the root cause of this, why would somebody go to that? Why would somebody eat, you know, in your opinion? Okay, I have kind of my own thoughts about this, you know, this whole like pleasure versus happiness type of a thing and these, you know, moments that people are trying to reach in these intermediate highs. What is, where do you feel, where do you stand on why addiction begins and kind of where it starts? So in terms of where it starts, I think there's a big genetic component to it. I think your genetics, your background could also have a big play into addiction. Also, the environment where you lived in, the different factors that played into it. And maybe the first time you had alcohol, that euphoric effect you felt. These are, I think, major players that take place in addiction. And then when it's compounded by that neurotransmitter changes that are happening in your brain, this could lead to the following effects of addiction. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And so I, I have another question that before we get into some, you know, tips and strategies and, and recognizing, you know, that you're addicted, how is it that some people are really do get trapped in addiction, whereas others can, you know, have drinks, you know, maybe even every night or at least every weekend and then on a whim just say, you know what, I'm just going to stop and just be able to stop cold turkey on a dime and it doesn't affect them. How, what do you think the reason is behind those two different types of people? So I think first of all, there's genetics. It's just the way someone's genes are, how much they get, um, that into behaviors take a hold. And then it's also on the brain chemistry, how much dopamine is being removed or being inhibited. I mm-hmm. think that all plays a role in creating that positive reinforcement. Interesting. That's so fascinating. Like there's, and there's so much to learn, right? There's still so much to learn about this. Um, and right. you know, we mentioned a gap in treatment, you know, the statistics say 10% of people who have addiction and that addiction that's actually harmful to them, 10% are receiving some form of treatment or have received treatment at some point in their life. Why is there a gap, do you think? And, and how do we incrementally start to close that gap and improve as a country? So I believe that there are four big categories for why there's this treatment gap. So I think there's patient eligibility, there's the treatment capacity, um, the provider knowledge and experience, and then just communication. So in terms of patient eligibility, I think there's a lot that comes with insurance, being able to pay it, having the resources for it. And then treatment capacity is these different residential treatment programs, how many patients they can take in. And then in terms of provider knowledge and experience, to be honest, medical school doesn't give that much training in addiction medicine. And part of our three exams known as the assembly, I think it's maybe 5% of questions that are related to addiction medicine. That's not enough training to take care of a disease that is 
brain changing. We get so much education on diabetes and hypertension, and we get one-eighth of that for addiction. So when there's a patient who's suffering, how is a provider going to be able to provide the brief intervention, the motivation, the counseling, and the treatment? And then lastly, I think there's also the communication. Patients don't know where to seek treatment or what treatment modalities are available. So I think these are like kind of the reasons why there's an ongoing gap for mental health. Yes, and like you had mentioned earlier, a person that comes to you, if you're a physician, you know, and they have some of these other comorbidities, you know, if they have diabetes, if they have, you know, obesity-related metabolic syndrome-type issues, there is a very strong chance that there is mental health uh, issues going on and addiction. Wouldn't you agree? Right. There's a great portion of these patients who are suffering from substance use disorder that have co-occurring mental illnesses as well, and that's what makes treating them a big challenge. So I heard you point out that medical school doesn't spend enough time on this. It also doesn't spend enough time talking about nutrition and just mental wellness overall. Uh, and this is the theme that I've heard year in and year out from your colleagues and friends and the, mm -hmm. and the doctors that I work with. And this is something that I'm definitely you know, passionate about trying to change is the education component of it. And this is why what I teach at the high school you know, we bring in all of this stuff and I teach advanced nutrition education, mental health, mental wellness, all these things in the school, in the high school level. And I've been told many times that the information that I cover vastly uh, surpasses what is covered in medical school. And I feel like, personally, I feel like that's where we can make a big change as far as closing the gap and being able, for you, a physician, helping people truly helping people that come to you with addiction and mental health disorders and weight problems and, you know, metabolic syndrome and cancer and everything else that just kind of compounds. I definitely agree. And it's great that you're starting with high school students because that puts the firm ground, the framework for understanding all this and they can relate that into whatever career they decide to go into. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So let's, Let's uh, let's talk about the other side of the coin right now. <laughs> let's talk about some success stories. Let's talk about some positivity. And I want to share a quote uh, let, let, in this feature that I call a thought to digest. Um, this quote is actually anonymous, and I really like it. It's saying, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you it's going to be worth it. Right. So I just feel like, you know, that's such a, a powerful thing, you know, and another quote, my recovery must come first so that everything I love in life does not have to come last. <laughs> that's a great thing. Right. So what are some success stories that you can share? And then also uh, in, a, in a little bit, we're going to talk about treatment programs. We're going to talk about tips and support solutions. But right now, some positivity. What are some upticks and upswings that you see that are occurring in the medical field, that are occurring nationwide or just in trends? You go to conferences. This is your passion. What are some positive things that you're kind of seeing? So just right off the bat, the actual definition for addiction is that it's a treatable chronic disease. So that means that there's comprehensive treatment that is available to treat those who are suffering from 
addiction disorders. So some positive stories that I've um, had is that during my time in our clinic in Palm Springs, I was able, I had the great opportunity to treat a 75-year-old female who was addicted to Xanax for over 25 years. Wow. And she started this 25 years. And this started because her husband died and she started having panic attacks, which is understandable. The loss of a spouse is extremely devastating. Mm-hmm. And what started off to treat her anxiety became a dependence. And at the age of 70, she came to me to get treatment. And it was a long journey. It took us two years to completely get her off the Xanax, but she did it. Slow steps, slowly monitoring, taking breaks in between whenever she needed it. It's not easy to get off the benzo, but she did it. But it was a two-year progress. And to, for someone in 70 to do it after 25 years of being addicted to that, med- addicted to that medicine, that's a big success story. That's a huge win, Karen. I love that story. Thank you for sharing. And I think anyone listening who hears that story, you know, people need to hear the whole story of, well, if that person can do it, so can I, right? You know, and if somebody who has had an addiction for 25 years, a quarter of a century, (laughs) to be able to overcome that addiction in not 25 more years, but in two years. I mean, granted, that's a long time, but like the quote says, you know, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you it's going to be worth it. Are you in contact with this woman still or no? I am. um, I'm actually her PCP, so she comes to see me for her other things as well, like her hypertension, osteoporosis. I think that's what family medicine is all about. We put the family in medicine, we develop these long relationships with them and that's what makes it worthwhile for us that's beautiful i love hearing that and and you know a a feather in your cap and a feather in the cap of family medicine and also this beautiful program that we have here with eisenhower and the family medicine residency i the staff everyone over there has done such a great job with all of you and i'm just so honored to be part of that program to be part of that family And I look forward to uh, once we kind of round the turn and we get past this and COVID is part of our history that we talk about, uh, that I could go back to um, lecturing and doing didactics and learning and spending time with that group over there. Stay tuned as Dr. Antweiler shares treatment programs, tips, and support solutions in her final thoughts to inspire hope right here on Tate Talks. Inspiring you with the tools and knowledge to make the necessary changes to live life optimally. This is Tate Talks on iHub Radio. This is Tate Talks, and you are listening to Jason Tate and my dear friend, Dr. Karen Antweiler. We are talking about addiction, substance use disorder, and we are on the upside. We are talking about the positive things right now as far as treatment programs, which is what we're going to get into right now, some tips and support solutions, some closing thoughts. Um, Before we get into that, I want to ask the question, how do you know you have an addiction? How do you spot, how do you recognize the fact that you have an addiction? 
So I think the most basic sign for any addiction is the loss of control. So with substance use disorder, it's not just that you're misusing a substance that leads to harm. It's what it actually is. It's that it's a compulsive behavior and it leads to progressive brain changes. So after loss of control, other things you can kind of look for is, are they engaged in things that they enjoy? Are they still doing the things or hobbies that they used to love? Are they still close to their family and friends? Or are they kind of pulling away, being a little bit more distant? How are they doing at school if it's a a kid or a young adolescent? Or at work? Or how are they at home? Is their work diminished? Are they starting to use alcohol in ways maybe that are more risky? like maybe drinking and driving? Do they need more alcohol to get the same kind of effect that they used to? That's when we kind of get into tolerance. And then do they have cravings and withdrawal symptoms when they stop using? So I think these are like indicators that are very important when we're trying to look for addiction. Definitely all things that are really important. And it just reminds me of how important it is for us to show empathy and compassion towards other people and just kind of be able to recognize these things, right? How often can you live with somebody and then just not see those things because you're so kind of caught up in all of the the baggage that you've got to carry, right? You know, and it's, we're all in this together. We've got to look out for each other. Right. And I think something important that providers often forget is that with those suffering from substance use disorder, You don't want to just give sympathy, but you want to give empathy. You want to empathize with them. And that's what's very important in treating these individuals. Right. Fantastic. Okay. So treatment programs. Uh, Somebody identifies that either themselves or a loved one has, you know, an addiction. Maybe it's not severe, but maybe it's something. What's the next step? What are some treatment programs that people can do? So the first step, I would say, since I'm in family medicine, is talk to your PCP. They have all the information you need to kind of determine what type of addiction it is, what kind of treatment we'll need, and what type of severity it is. So one of the positive things about addiction right now is that it's, it's evolving. There's all kinds of treatment that's going on. There's a lot of research. So in terms of treatment, there are a variety of models. So there's inpatient, outpatient. There's telehealth now, which is big because of covid there's mm-hmm. detox areas, sober living. There's so many options that if you kind of just talk to your provider or your PCP, you can make like this plan together. And for example, for alcohol, there are now medications that are approved by the FDA to reduce alcohol consumption and cravings. A common one that's being used is known as naltrexone. For opioid use disorder, now there's something known as medication-assisted therapy. This is becoming very popular now as Treatment rates are showing to be very positive. These medications are known as Suboxone and Methadone, and they're showing great results. And of course, there are like non-pharmacological treatments as well. There's your 12-step programs, your AA meetings, NA meetings, your smart recovery programs, and particularly in Coachella Valley. We have our world-renowned Betty Ford, Hazelden Betty Ford, which is a great place for rehabilitation. There's our Coachella Valley Volunteers in Medicine, they help get the word out among homeless Valley residents need a treatment. So there's, the treatment list is not ending. We just need patients to have the strength to come to us for help. That's fantastic. And what a great resource. Uh, before we get into tips and solutions, I want to ask the question, how can somebody reach out to you 
as you're developing and growing and becoming more and more of an addiction medicine specialist, which I totally see this happening for you, how can somebody find you? Where do they find you? Is this on Facebook? Is this Instagram? Do you have a website? How can people find you? So, of course, people can access me through my email, um, my Instagram, um, my Facebook. They're on Eisenhower Health uh, Family Medicine Clinic in La Quinta. All they have to do is ask to make an appointment with me. Usually, I'm there once a week, so they should be able to squeeze me, squeeze a patient to my schedule. So, anyone okay. in the Coachella Valley who wants to get treated, I'm happy to help. And I'll be sharing your email and uh, your, the Instagram is actually also shared on mine. If you go to tatetalks.radio, you can find the most recent post that I did talking about this show and talking about Karen with a picture of Karen as well. And it does look like you skipped <laughs> undergraduate school. <laughs> uh, I feel like an old man compared to your picture. So, and I know you're, you're very young, but you're very bright and, and I see, speaking of bright, I see an incredibly bright future ahead for you. So nine quick tips, support solution, tips and steps. So nine tips for staying positive. So one is very basic. Keep yourself out of harm's way. You want to avoid triggers to the best of your ability. Don't put, your, don't put yourself into situations that make you uncomfortable or promote negativity. Next. This is very important. Find a consistent peer support group. This could be like a 12-step program if you're suffering from alcohol use disorder. You want to have a home group, a specific meeting that you'll be attending every single week. This is where you can develop friendships with the people here. And hopefully, ultimately, you'll be able to keep each other accountable. Number three, you also want to get a solid and extensive support group in addition to your peer support group. So this could be family members, friends, close, sober friends who want the best for you. Or it could be your therapist, a counselor, or your case manager. Four, find effective ways to manage your cravings. So cravings are normal. They're expected in early recovery. So rather than getting down, you can combat it. So things could be as calling a friend, going on a jog, maybe going to a 12-step meeting program, or sharing, it, sharing about it in your support group. Mm-hmm. Next, find a hobby. So the best way to maintain a positive outlook is by filling your free time with the things you like to do. So cooking, dancing, the world is your oyster. Just have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'm going to have to jump in right now because we're almost out of time. It goes by so fast, doesn't it? No, <laughs> it does. <laughs> so... Uh, on your list, and you were so kind to share this list with me, number five, relaxation, number six, physical health, seven, volunteer, eight, prepare yourself, and nine, I love the gratuity journal or the gratitude journal, fantastic. It has been such an amazing hour with you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and with my listeners. This has been fantastic. I'm definitely going to have to have you back on the show and we'll talk more as you progress <laughs> through your program. Still Thank to you. come on the next hour of Tate Talks, we have What Moves You, I have Empty Your Cup, and Here's to Your Health, all of my fancy features to share with you. Stay with me right here on Tate Talks. Tate Talks.